0: Hello there, listeners. The number of medical devices that are connected to the internet are quickly accelerating as the quality of software to manage and use devices are improving. Tracking the maintenance and ownership of these devices over their entire product lifecycle can be a difficult process for healthcare organizations. In today's episode, I had the opportunity to speak with a true innovator in this space. Susan Remina, CEO of Spiritus Partners, a startup building technology that could disrupt the way health systems, device manufacturers, and third-party service providers work together to ensure better safety, cybersecurity, compliance, and tracking of medical devices. I really enjoyed learning from Susan, and I hope you all enjoyed this episode. If you do, please share it with your communities. If you haven't already subscribed to Robert Miller's weekly newsletter on blockchain and healthcare, You should check out the link to the latest issue in the show notes, or just go to bert.substack.com. It highlights the top blockchain healthcare stories every Sunday. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not giving any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain. blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today's guest is Susan Reminat, CEO of Spiritus Partners, a company that provides medical device lifecycle management solutions that uses blockchain technology to fundamentally secure devices and allow for better data sharing models. Susan, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be with you, Ray. I really appreciate the interest and in, uh, your audience.
0: Awesome. Well, let's get started here. I'd kind of want the audience to understand who you are a little bit. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your background and your career experience so far.
1: Sure. Um, I had a long career in finance, uh, some some 30 years, uh, working uh, the last uh, decade and a half or so for a financial services firm out of Philadelphia that provides wealth management and fund administration services to very large banking institutions, hedge funds, private equity funds uh, here in the States as well as elsewhere around the globe. Um, During the latter part of my uh, tenure there, I was uh, head of risk uh, for the company. Um, Prior to that, I had worked uh, in the technology unit uh, around uh, some of the financial modeling around major investments, as well as I did enterprise sales and product development. So quite well-rounded. A lot of that... uh, Changed uh, with the financial crisis. Uh, that's when I stepped up and uh, agreed to take the responsibility to build the risk management function. So that's uh, that's career background.
0: Interesting. Um, I also know that you publish in a newsletter or your own newsletter, connecting the dots, and that's something that more that's more recent, from what I understand. Do you want to talk a little bit about the newsletter?
1: i think it uh yeah sure it brings a thread in here um that relates to my transition um to found spiritus with my co-founder um around uh, 2011-12 i started to recognize that there was strategic risk for our our corporation coming out of uh, innovation in silicon valley new york and london certainly elsewhere in what we now understand to be fintech um As a consequence, I I dove in and and developed some appreciation for what was going on with AI, machine learning, uh, cybersecurity, and distributed ledger blockchain technology, among others. So I was really framing things up more broadly around what would be the impact on a well-established company known for innovating and supporting other companies, fundamentally a technology-based one. How could we continue to support our clients and their businesses uh, and what did we need to be do to be on our front foot in terms of the transformation what we now consider to be disruption that was coming out of the out of those uh, locations and the amount of investment that was going in so consistent with that, while uh, we can talk a bit about spiritus and the problem we're addressing, I have maintained that that focus in that broader lens, uh, adding to it I would, I would' say the internet of things, certainly some appreciation. Uh, for robotics understood not just as robotic process automation uh, but robotics more properly uh, as well as AR and VR. That's a, a reason to say that uh, from a newsletter standpoint uh, for my readers what I'm really trying to do is make sure that I keep that lens open around emerging technologies uh, and their impact on healthcare really with an idea to support uh, innovators who want to think and drive change and really that's That's what I try to do. I try to bring content that they may not otherwise run across that's provocative uh, as well as, uh, you know, responsibly, responsibly represented.
0: Right. And, you know, I do enjoy your newsletter, so I can also add it to the show notes so others can also enjoy it. Um, And you mentioned innovation risk that you were kind of dealing with at some point. Um, Can you kind of go a little bit deeper into that? What does that mean when you say innovation risk?
1: There were a strategic risks to the corporation uh, coming from disruptive models that could potentially uh, disrupt our business model, our operating models, our ability to price with clients and deliver value. To I mean, the company really...
0: was too large to continue innovating or was there? No,
1: no, that uh, in fact, uh, as a uh, top line of about billion, a billion and a half dollars, but with a market cap of over nine billion publicly traded company that we had to, if we were going to continue to support very large financial institutions, many of them regulated uh, here and overseas, that we had to put our best foot forward in terms of our understanding of enabling technologies uh, so that we could uh, refresh and and develop and innovate on our own platforms on behalf of our clients. Mm. And so in that sense, that was a strategic risk to the company not to have a very wide aperture and understanding what was going on. And as I said, in this case, it was financial technology, what we call FinTech, marshalling some of these more general purpose technologies uh, with very targeted business models uh, that would pick away, if you will, around elements of our business or potentially disrupt our clients' business. Um, some people will think of risk in, in finance, and while they should in the wake of the financial crisis, being around the financial risks, the counterparty risk, the contagion, the collapse of the banks, Or operational risks and certainly the operational risks around legal and compliance obligations, uh, fraud risk, uh, being able to support and and develop your talent and staff, all operational risks. Uh, Strategic risk matters as well. And in the sense that I was reporting to our executive team and as well our board of directors, it was my responsibility to keep that, that purview and that wide angle lens, if you will, as well as to narrow in on those things and say, here's the potential impact and promote a discussion around what recommendations would you have, what might we do? Uh, so I, I would just suggest that uh, on principle, I, I tend to have that wide view, the ability to sort through what's going on in the world, sift through it, and then uh, put the burden on myself uh, to get informed and educated experts as well as any re- research I might do and make a case, make an argument that something merits attention Build awareness, find the right ways and methods to bring attention to an issue. And then come forward with recommendations, understanding that there's a complex dynamic in large corporations uh, and any large entity around an enterprise and, and some of the things it must do on a day-to-day basis to deliver uh, for its ultimate clients, as well as in the case of a public corporation, uh, the stakeholders represented by shareholders, uh, employees, and, and other parties. So. I think I've been very consistent in that ability to take in what's going on from the outside and the complexity, distill it down to a, an understanding of the world and challenge myself and challenge others to say, is there something meaningful here that we need to respond to?
0: Hmm. It's very interesting. I feel like right now the economy is in a place where, um, I don't know, It's I would say it's really hot. It's just peaking, uh, but I can't really tell. I'd love to get some of your insight or what you think about the current economy, uh, but not not to say, you know, I, I want to get into Spiritus, so um, maybe really briefly, what do you think about the current e- economic situation we have globally going on? Well, we've
1: been on we've been on a run um, since the financial crisis of of over ten years at this point. So uh, you know, his, history would suggest that we're uh, aiming toward a recession on the on at some point. the election cycles tend to have some impact on uh, what the Federal Reserve does. Uh, but if you look at the, you pull back your lens to the early 1980s when interest rates peaked at about 14% on long treasuries, uh, the stock market bottomed out around 700, 750. Um, you can see those two charts kind of going, uh, you know, inversely with one another. With interest rates dropping now to, to virtually zero or close to zero, mm-hmm. and the stock market progressing up. I mean, there are really only two things you really needed to know. Although there were a variety of economic cycles uh, through that period. And importantly, we came out of, a, of uh, a high unemployment and high inflation in the late 70s and early 80s. So People uh, don't really rem- remember or wouldn't have experienced uh, inflation in the high single digits uh, and unemployment, likewise, that was at a really high level. We've had interest rates very low for some period of time, some question about whether uh, we're feeding the system with too much money, uh, whether we've still got uh, debt load to unwind. Uh, and as well, we've got job creation issues, which I, I think, unfortunately, are, are, are figuring large. So, uh, not to be, uh, you know, have, have political commentary here, but certainly, there's been a boost as well from from the tax cuts that we saw a couple of
0: years ago. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, how did you get into healthcare in that in that case?
1: Uh, so, there's several threads to this, and some of it is really the the why and the when. So, let's go back to that uh, period when I was a a, a risk officer and focused on strategic risk. Another big piece of what I was looking at, uh, not just from the standpoint of innovative technologies coming across the, the wall, if you will, cybersecurity played very large in, in what we had as responsibilities from a legal and compliance standpoint uh, to our clients and on behalf of their clients and under the uh, regular, r- regulatory jurisdictions that we were obliged to to manage. So personally identifiable information, certainly something that uh, we had to protect, the privacy. But increasingly, I became concerned about operational risk. If you think about the financial crisis, uh, there was a risk of contagion. Uh, That was one of the reasons that the Fed stepped in and provided the TARP program. And uh, we had banks merge uh, to try to staunch the contagion that really started to spiral out of control with Lehman's bankruptcy in September of 2008. Well, over time, I came to recognize that uh, just as the flows of money uh, between firms could contribute to balance sheet collapse and and, uh, cash issues uh, very dramatically overnight, I also then started to think about the operational connectivity between us, and some of this will feed into distributed ledger and blockchain. Suffice it to say that on a day-to-day basis, as securities are traded and payments are made and uh, major transactions occur, Uh, There is an interwoven network and ecosystem of players in finance of many different stripes and areas of responsibility, uh, regulatory obligations, as well as roles that they play. We were part of the fabric of that. In understanding all of that, and as I thought about cybersecurity, I really started to become concerned about operational resilience. What would happen if either through uh, problems with systems and or malicious attacks, Um, These systems of the financial markets might be taken down. And that was that awareness that led me to start uh, exploring further the threat to critical infrastructure industries. And this is when, uh, in addition to utilities and transports and finance, uh, as I talked with chief information security officers in those industries, uh, as well as folks from government agencies, healthcare kind of came into view as well. Related to that, I joined the industrial advisory board of Loyal University of Chicago's engineering science department. Uh, The woman who uh, runs that department is a biomedical engineer. Uh, She has written the undergraduate textbook on systems engineering for medical devices. She's now updating that because there's a lot going on around medical devices. But I recall having a conversation with her. Uh, about uh, the possibility that someone could hack into medical devices, whether it's an implantable defibrillator, an infusion pump, or otherwise. And that, frankly, five years ago, started a series of conversations that set me off doing research on my own. You know, what are some of the issues? And as I dug into it and started to talk with the gentleman who ultimately became my co-founder, I started to realize there were a lot of complex issues around not just cyber and medical devices, but importantly, about safety more generally challenges that the industry experienced, whether it was health systems, clinicians, their patients, manufacturers, and regulators trying to get their their arms around um, the volumes and complexity of devices, the many significant innovations and the important things that we all rely on on a day-to-day basis uh, as patients or as as family members, medical device-based interventions. And what I saw was challenges around safety, quality, and compliance that extended, yes, into the supply chain and around uh, regulatory requirements about conducting recalls, but more generally, a very fragmented ecosystem of players that were involved around the operating life of a device. Let's take an infusion pump, or let's think about a ventilator or a surgical robot now. Uh, The operating lives of these very expensive but very important uh, devices and equipment can be uh, five, years or longer, and it needs to be serviced. Uh, There are routine maintenance and repair cycles. There's inspection and testing that occurs, uh, as well to the extent there are recalls. Uh, Somebody's got to do the work. And here is where we have some challenges because whether for legal uh, reasons, contractual obligations, uh, or otherwise, um, there are many different operating models that may be in play across uh, health systems inventory of medical devices if we if we can refer right. to it as that right? you have
0: many touch points in that case you know for a 10-year device and maybe even longer you're gonna have many touch points every year you'll probably have to recalibrate so what part of that life cycle is your company trying to engage in and what where is it helping prospects or your clients
1: so let's let's step back from that and and talk about the distinction between supply chain and the operating life because because they both matter and the parties that are involved. Uh, when you think about a device being commissioned into use or an implant being staged for surgery, um, you have the manufacturer and their upstream contract suppliers. You may well have distributors as well. Uh, the regulatory obligations that in uh, it's due for a manufacturer represented by uh, there are obligations to not only follow uh, reporting requirements to the FDA, but to deserve, observe uh, quality standards ISO 9001, ISO 13485, which is more specific to medical device quality, and then a variety of CFR related obligations. Uh, when you step into the health system, and this is where the, the fragmentation comes in when I think about a specific device by contract and preference or otherwise, it may be my cl- my clinical engineering team at the health system, my staff and employees uh, that are conducting and responsible for maintenance repair. It may be by contract that the manufacturer is insistent that only their staff can perform repairs, that, that there is a combination of uh, deep understanding proprietary uh, uh Software or other things that need to be protected, they are in the best position to do that. Mm-hmm. And similarly, there might be a third party that the manufacturer certifies, in appropriate training, and other certifications that you go through, or there may be a third party that the, the the health system contracts with. Each and each of these models may actually apply within a health system, and over time may change. Um, mm-hmm. Likewise, we are now introducing increasingly um, devices that are network connectable. They have connectivity. Um, They may be interoperable, not only with other devices uh, or systems, they may be interoperable with a pharmacy system or the EHR. They may be software enabled. They may have algorithms, adaptive algorithms. Uh, The chief information security officer of a major health system shared with the FDA Uh, two and a half years ago or so at a regulatory science workshop uh, that over 20% of the devices across his three major uh, locations uh, and roughly 25,000 were in fact connected devices. There were 6,000 unique makes, models, and versions and over a dozen operating systems. So from his point of view, um, regardless of the parties involved, Having transparency and being able to maintain a cadence and rhythm around routine inspection, software upgrades, uh, and the like, much less acting on recalls, uh, patching vulnerabilities, being on their front foot and having that transparency in view was a real challenge. Uh, we hear this from other health systems, not just here in the United States, but from our experience uh, in Scotland as well. I certainly can talk about that thread around spiritus. But this is the context in which we started to say to ourselves, long supply chains, complex operating environments, complex, uh, servicing models, uh, and importantly, um, this introduction of connectivity software. And now we, we, we now refer to as AI and ML, uh, with regulators trying to themselves keep a pace and rhythm, um, to, to manage all this, um, all with a, a backdrop of, uh, significant uh, changes in interventions that really do offer the promise of of improvements not only in an acute care setting but really to promote what I, I'm sure many of your uh, professionals in health and life sciences well recognize is the opportunity and the desire and the need from a from an economic standpoint um, as well as uh, from a, a delivery standpoint to to encourage patients and be in a position to do preventive, uh, preventive uh, self-management, remote monitoring, telehealth, allow people to be in-home and managing their lives in a way that is much more cost-effective uh, for all involved and uh, a much more beneficent situation for patients as well. So if you pull at uh, uh, some of the broader trends, you find medical devices in the middle of a lot of the major changes that are happening, and we became concerned that getting the right foundation in place and the opportunity to address this set of problems uh, around quality, safety, getting transparency and visibility, that in fact there might be a use case here to bring this ecosystem together and do selective data sharing in a private permission setting, only that which is necessary to uh, what we refer to as not only having the chain of custody as legal entities sort of take the hand um, around the device, but importantly, a single service history. And that's really the important point. You know, is it safe and good order at the point of care? Uh, I spoke at a panel at GS1 had uh, over the summer at their GS1 Connect event. One of the panelists said to me, Susan, it sounds like what you're talking about is Carfax for medical devices. Hmm. And I paused and I realized, you know what? She She's, she's right about that. That is, in a way what we're trying to do
0: here. So I, I would argue also Carfax is currently not on the blockchain, though. So the argument would be, why can't you do this in a centralized database? Um, it, what, it's fair
1: enough. That's uh, fair enough. But if you think about who's, um, who's uh, providing that, that identifier and VIN, there are central authorities that allow that traceability back. And that kind of brings me back to the FDA here. Uh, and one of the major uh, factors that that led us to think there would be an opportunity to bring this together uh, almost a decade ago, the FDA moved to a requirement that was staged in over time that manufacturers provide unique device identifiers with the device identifier and product information accompanying a device. Now that was staged in over time. There is something called the Good ID database where manufacturers provide that information. Uh, that information is uh, against the standard. There are a variety of parties or, or bodies um, that uh, are able to take that information and uh, GS1 standards fit into that. There's something known as a G10. Um, so there's a lot of discussion within healthcare and among manufacturers. How can they um, assign these numbers, ensure these numbers are propagated through their systems, and then they are uh, Able to in supply chain, in payments, invoicing, payables, and management of stock and inventory, and then through the life cycle, as, as I'm referring to it, as it touches the patient and beyond, uh, ensure traceability, if you will, around the device identifier. So that that was really a, a step forward. Right now, uh, to be more direct to your question, many health systems have what are known as CMMS systems. That literally stands for computerized maintenance management systems Um, so it's not unique to healthcare. Um, they're used in in other industries as well so the question becomes uh, is that the single source of truth if in fact a manufacturer is conducting repairs uh, directly on either through its own staff and how is that information shared uh, and at what level of detail and if it's a remote patch that's performed uh, by others where does that come from if it's a third-party service provider i've contracted with To what extent am I seeing that detail uh, under contract? Did I uh, establish contracts that entitled me uh, to see that data? And this is clearly a significant legal and compliance challenge in addition to a technical challenge.
0: Right. And the CMMS um, software systems, they're still siloed, right? So each health system contains their own uh, device information, but they don't have... What's happening when it leaves their facilities? Yeah, that's a, it
1: can be. A, yeah, it can be a problem. It may be loaned. Uh, mm-hmm. It may. Uh, they may have within their health system another entity that's providing home care, but it's their patient. So how do how do you cross these uh, these bridges and share data? That data, which is necessary, but still uh, be mindful of and engineer in, if you will. Uh, the ability to protect the interests uh, of those who are obliged as well as to provide the transparency that all parties would want and that regulators might uh, require as well. And that's the needle we're, we're trying to thread here.
0: Yeah. And I, I like to think of your platform also being capable of possibly giving some opportunity for uh, countries that can't afford high end devices, but sort of buy them at the end of their life cycle. Um, and in this way, they can, those people or those organizations can still track what, how, what the life was of the device before they use it. For example, so something that's well, been used for ten years but might have three or four more years, and it's being sold at a really cheap price. Some research facility might take advantage of that, you know, price point. Uh, so it'd be good to have ten years of, you know, the Carfax for the device, basically.
1: Well that's that. a good, a good a good insight. Yes, uh, there is a very sizable uh market for resale of devices if you will. Some of that is auction, uh, uh physical auctions at locations, some of that is online or hybrids. It is a global market. Um those developing countries or and or countries who are moving into more affluent um Overall, lifestyles are unfortunately as well experiencing some of the cr- same issues around chronic non communicable disease that we are cardiovascular issues, uh, diabetes, neurodegenerative disorders, and the populations are growing. So, there's a very large market. I think I just saw a recent estimate that that market right now is about a projected to be within a couple of years a $12 billion global market growing in double. Double digits, low, low, double digits, and the U.S. is a big part of it. Uh, health systems are, yes, consolidating. So, and some hospitals are shutting down, going bankrupt, or otherwise. There are new facilities being put up. So, there, are, whether you're talking about infusion pumps, patient monitors, endoscopes, ventilators, C arms, uh, whatever it might be, they're, they're very significant markets here. Um, I think one could make a case just on the face of it. That buyers would probably pay more if they had assurance and sellers could raise, you know, realize more, uh, if they had more, more assurance in that, in that sense. Now that's yet to be proven out. Um, there are many highly reputable and strongly experienced certified organizations that perform servicing and inspection when they take on, um, either the responsibility, um, to, um, if you will, decommission and or Deinstall devices and equipment, uh, but you you have an important insight there. Hmm.
0: So uh, you know we talked a lot about devices that might you might find in a hospital setting. Are you is that your target market? Is are the hospitals or is it manufacturers or is it these third party servicers? And have you thought about possibly integrating your software with individuals who might have some sort of medical device at their home and they want to keep that on record as well
1: Uh, great questions let's start with the you know the three major players here Mm -hmm. i think we started our journey uh, we we understood that manufacturers uh, had significant uh, obligations and impacts uh, financially and otherwise coming from uh, adverse events uh, around medical devices and challenges uh, significant challenges McKinsey uh, did a study in 2011, which they updated in 2017, which, uh, based on their survey, suggests that manufacturers have a 7 to 9% top line impact uh, annually from quality events. That works out to a number of over $30 billion globally. Uh, what's in that number? That number is what they do spend, and they spend substantially on quality management, regulatory affairs, but it also contemplates fines and penalties, litigation, and potential competitive issues and, and loss of revenues um, to the extent they, they have uh, challenges in the marketplace because of issues that they have. That's a big number. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other side of it, health systems are, are squarely in the center. And as I described to you, when you, when you look at from the from their point of view, whether it's the head of clinical engineering, uh, clinical operations, um, nursing staff, you know, trying to, to find the infusion pump that they need and, and, and ensure that it's, uh, it's safe, um, or um, the chief information security officers, the health systems have a lot of challenges. We had an opportunity by virtue of a grant provided to us uh, by the inward investment arm of the Scottish government um, to set up a development center uh, in Edinburgh, Scotland, um, as part of the Uh, application process for that and getting to know the Scottish uh, uh, environment for technology staff. We also got introductions to the National Health Service. And we ultimately made a decision to, my co-founder and I, to move over to Scotland as we built up our development team. We had the opportunity to spend time uh, with folks from a variety of uh, areas, as I've described, within the National Health Service. Uh, People in the United States, tend to think of it as this monolith. It's a single payer, single provider market. Well, even in Scotland, a, a nation of a little over five 5 million people, there are 14 separate regional boards or trusts, if you will, and seven specialized, one of which is a shared services organization. So we had an opportunity to, to talk with the staff uh, at those major boards because it's a relatively small nation as well. We had an opportunity to Spent time with the government policymakers as well as what they call the, the third sector and social care organizations, to get a feel for that whole picture. And by the way, Scotland's dealing with many of the same challenges uh, we are here in the States. Um, they have uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow represent uh, the two large metropolitan areas. Glasgow, uh, more analogous to some of the Rust Belt cities uh, here in the United States, hmm. strong shipbuilding history, uh, some very impoverished areas. Edinburgh, the the cosmopolitan capital on the other coast, if you will. Uh, But the highlands and the islands, very rural settings uh, and chronic non-communicable disease. Early onset, in fact, uh, Scotland is a place where a lot of life sciences and medical research is done because of that population. Uh, While it's a small population, unfortunately, those lifestyle habits and and eating habits and the like uh, that contribute to those issues that we experience here in the United States a writ large for the National Health Service in Scotland it is the largest portion of the Scottish Government's budget uh, is associated with the National Health Service. Uh, just to understand the UK, um, under the, uh, the uh, devolution of powers to the Scottish Government uh, 20 some years ago, the primary responsibility they took on was the National Health Service. So that's on their budget and it's on their government. When there are issues, uh, in the holiday season where there aren't enough beds, uh, or, you know, care's not getting to, to folks, it's the Scottish government that's on the front lines, uh, taking the heat for that. And they certainly understand that. And in that sense, the, they are quite open to, to innovation. It was a great opportunity for us to test out. Uh, and we had a, in addition to the, the grant around hiring talent, We had a grant for a pilot uh, that allowed us to work with the National Health Service and brought to bear the expertise of a top cybersecurity researcher, a professor at Edinburgh Napier University, uh, who is actually on the board of Blockchain and Healthcare today, uh, Bill Buchanan.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Um, So are you spending like half your time in Scotland? I'm just wondering if there's a, are you mostly in Pennsylvania where the company is based?
1: Uh, we moved over to Scotland in, in June of uh, 17, and and we're there um, living there. With I made numerous trips back to the states. Uh, in the spring, we moved back to the states as our business development opportunities here in the states um, started to really come to the point where we needed to give uh, full attention to that.
0: Welcome to the Health on Chain News Corner. A big headline in the last couple of weeks was the revelation of Project Nightingale, Google's somewhat secretive deal with the largest nonprofit health system in the United States, Ascension. In 2018, Google gained access to over 50 million people's medical records spanning 21 states. People are shining a spotlight on this deal with Ascension. But what we don't seem to realize is that Google has already had access to patient data from other healthcare organizations for years, often without patient consent. Google plans to use this data to generate emergent medical data, which can be used to predict people's health without their actual health data. They can use less sensitive consumer data to glean insight about a person's health. Google states that it'll use this data to support improvements in clinical quality and patient safety. Considering Google's parent company, Alphabet, which already has a stronghold on search, email, YouTube, and its recent acquisition of Fitbit, this project's scale makes Google become an even larger, fully comprehensive surveillance enterprise. And there are no laws to stop it. The Department of Health and Human Services are investigating Project Nightingale, but I don't think our current regulatory frameworks and technology infrastructure will actually be able to prevent this type of data sharing from happening. I do think that we need a solution to fundamentally change the way data is treated, especially for consent management and data ownership. I think that eventually distributed ledger technology will create new models that will allow emerging medical data insights to be generated, that satisfies the demands of all participating stakeholders, including the patient. When that will happen, I don't know. You'll just have to keep listening to Health on Chain to find out. And now back to the show with Susan Reminat, CEO of Spiritus Partners. So let's kind of dig deep into the technical side of things with Spiritus. So, um, you know, I read on your website, or actually we had this discussion before that you used to be on Ethereum for your core blockchain protocol. And you switched over to Hyperledger. I'd like to kind of understand what the thought process was behind that. And, um, then we can kind of dig in a little bit more in general or, yeah. I want to talk about that. Good.
1: Well, uh, I'll give my co-founder a credit for this because it was a very serious discussion we had, uh, when we actually started to architect out the solution and really begin building the technology, uh, in uh, the spring of '17. We'd been uh, researching uh, and putting the pieces together um, really going back to 2014-15 uh, as it regards the, the technology side. Because of my work uh, in financial services, I was actually developed the blockchain program um, at the financial services firm I was working with. So I had gotten to know the folks at R3 when they first announced the dozen or so banks that joined the consortium. I knew some of the major players, uh, spent time with Joe Lubbin uh, in Brooklyn uh, in uh, late 15, early 16, um, and then also some of the folks out in the valley that um, have gone on to uh, either excel in financial services or uh, more generally uh, in blockchain around the protocols. Our hypothesis was that it was a an, an very immature but promising technology. I had the lens both from finance and then from from, from healthcare, that there was an opportunity to have uh, the selective data sharing that would f- not only provide transparency but provide s- significant efficiency and productivity gain opportunities. That that was really a cornerstone. So we started around the hypothesis that going into regulated sector, uh, we were going to need enterprise grade software, and that there was going to be quite a long journey if you think about 2014, 15. While IBM was getting into it and others and I certainly know the major people at, at IBM uh, and elsewhere that it was going to take some time. So but go back to, to, uh, late 15, early 16, the announcement of the Hyperledger project. We decided that the, the prudent thing to do was to make ourselves protocol agnostic mm-hmm. to be built for blockchain, but not build a blockchain protocol. We're not a blockchain company in that sense. We built for blockchain with a small b, with an i to uh, an API-enabled platform that could, over time, migrate as the technology matured, um, as enterprise-grade solutions with the support that would come around it uh, would fall into place. Certainly, we see now Microsoft, IBM, AWS, all delivering services to support that. We felt over time... Likewise, that the idea of who would operate the networks, it's one thing to say you have a consortium of players. In our case, let's just say it's health systems, manufacturers, and third-party service providers, distributors, and others. Uh, That over time, while you might arrive at a consortium from a business and operating model standpoint, we had a hypothesis over time that players would emerge that would make it their business to actually operate the networks and yes, the fees you would incur would reflect some of the cost of running those networks, but that that technology infrastructure as well, um, you wouldn't be having to stand all that up. So where do we end up? Uh, we build on Ethereum. Uh, the solution architect we hired already had experience in uh, building an, a, an implementation for fork traceability. Um, so we thought that that was you know, a good an a- analog uh, from, the, from the start for us. And as we, as we stepped into it, uh, he certainly had the experience of Ethereum, but we always had on our roadmap a migration to Hyperledger and Hyperledger Fabric at that time. We had conversations with the team at Sawtooth Lake. You and I haven't talked about it, but longer term, certainly you'd like to be in a position where on a machine-to-machine basis, if we think of it as the Internet of Medical Things, some of the devices I've referred to, whether it's in-home wearables or in an acute or outpatient setting, the internet of medical things that there was potential, but it's a very big lift. But there was potential on a machine to machine basis to uh, mediate, if you will, the authentication and verification of, of uh, devices uh, to one another, movement of data across, across networks. We saw that, hence Sawtooth, uh, which uh, from a standpoint of Intel having been, you know, really the core of of developing that and contributing it to the hyperledger community, Uh, it was conceived with the Internet of Things in mind, while Wall Street's thinking of tens of millions of transactions per second, they're thinking of billions and billions of devices, right? So when you step back and you say, what would be the strategic arc of a successful uh, bringing together of the parties we're talking about in the ecosystem globally, we're thinking about, we wanted that flexibility. I will offer as well, I mentioned R3, uh, I always had R3 uh, in my view. Um, this gets into you know, some of the detail around blockchain per se as defined uh, by Satoshi versus implementations that are blockchain inspired or uh, may go beyond that to really say how do I enable in a private permission setting, peer to peer transactions where it all that which is necessary is shared, but is private to the two parties. And how do they then move an asset across, you know, across time and follow that asset across time? In that sense, I'll open my lens and say, uh, it may well be that over time, uh, while being on Hyperledger Fabric, that as uh, consortium will evolve, uh, and certainly as public and private interoperability come into view, um, there will have to be adept. And, flexible. and so that's always been in principle what we've, we've uh, tried to do. And I think those decisions have been borne out. The Enterprise Ethereum Alliance is making progress as well. Uh, for some time, that was a bit of a black box. I think now they are opening up uh, more as to what is going on there. And I think that's really a good constructive step forward on their part.
0: I'm wondering, do you have any uh, patents or does the company have any patents regarding the technology or... 've been building yeah we,
1: ha- we have not taken taken that course I think uh, on principle certainly we uh, have taken advice from from patent attorneys uh, we did explore uh, one around uh, some of the deep technology that take you all the way down to the hardware and the chips uh, and we decided to step away from that again I, I think it, if you look at it uh, ours is an application mm-hmm. uh, it's not a, a blockchain protocol implementation
0: Understood. So let's say, h- how is your data stored in what way? And when you mentioned health systems could potentially in the future function as nodes or run their own networks, um, is that what you're kind of advertising now? Or how are you kind of pitching the idea to health systems now?
1: I, I think that's that's an evolution. It's a good question. I, I'll, I'll engineer the question another way and say, To to what extent, uh, what is uh, necessary um, to share, uh, desirable to share, that adds enough value for the parties involved uh, that would be on-chain, and then what information is off-chain, as as I'm sure you've you've had numerous conversations around this. Um, This is really a matter of rolling up the sleeves and having those discussions, and what might be... Uh, helpful for a minimum viable consortium and a proof of concept is going to evolve over time and these things don't evolve in sort of concentric circles. Um, what the technology will enable in terms of privacy and security decisions you make around consensus mechanisms, uh, where you end up around performance and scale, the horizon around those is in a dynamic and there's a sort of a gravitational pull back and forth, not only for what the technology will allow and every what everyone is working on, but what the governance framework is and what then the legal relationships are among the parties and what's allowed. Hmm. I won't get ahead of myself and say that is still to be sorted out. Hmm. Uh, I think what you do is you just have a starting position that says if I have three Three major parties uh, of a certain sort involved, four major parties of a sort involved in here, and all, to some extent, want to be able to support regulatory reporting. Uh, here in the United States, the FDA uh, in the EU, to the extent distributors have obligations under the EU MDR, that some of the manufacturers have around post-market surveillance and adverse event management, north of the border in Canada, what those obligations are, or from the standpoint of the health uh um, the health systems, what the joint commission might require, or state health authorities, uh, what is it you need to enable? Those are very fine grained discussions and they don't happen quickly. And this is, we'll come back to, um, um, I think, very important points when people ask me about uh, business blockchain and business use cases. This is a long pull and a long journey. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the challenges around proofs of concept, not just uh, to healthcare, uh, but in other sectors as well, is uh, you may end up on the beach, you know, uh, and have proof something from proof of concept standpoint. But we really are talking fundamentally about tidal changes in business and operating models, uh, mm-hmm. and they take time. And that's what I think R3 found is they were able to bring together not just a dozen, but uh, you know, ultimately uh, I think over a hundred organizations, and they ended up. Realizing the consortia are going to evolve on their own, and certainly some of the major banks they involved are collaborating on various use cases, but they focused on the software down at the protocol layer and supporting, uh, you know, the uh, tokenization uh, of assets. And, uh, we talk about as smart contracts. Um, so I, I I hesitate to go deep into that other than say it is to be determined. Mm -hmm. I also want to make a distinction. Uh, There's an important one for us here, at least now, which is I like to break uh, blockchain at, from a technology standpoint uh, into three three uh, distinct but related things. One is multi-party consensus. Whatever those mechanisms are, whatever those proofs as we understand them to be, multi-party consensus. And a shared registry you know, on which those transactions are recorded and an independently database of some sort. Then there's what we refer to as smart contracts, which I like to refer to as business logic, um, if-then statements um, that have some impact on that that registry in, in some direct fashion. But from the standpoint of operating model and business model changes, may, if you actually are talking through how you're going to actually deliver value and, and change um, existing processes enough, but also like integrate with legacy systems, a broader discussion about the business processes and workflows internal to these or- organizations, external uh, to other parties, either directly or through exchanges and interoperability, all of which is evolving in healthcare. You know, some of these things are on the supply chain side are well established, uh, certainly FIRE, HL7, and other things. Uh, but I mentioned the, the device identifiers or, or what are known as GTINs in the GS1 world. This stuff is all still evolving, and and uh, you know the therefore the the reengineering of the business processes and workflows is to be determined. So um, I, I'm keen to say, to the extent there's the ability to marshal business logic in a way that uh, folks refer to as smart contracts uh, and and trigger transactions and do them uh, with a lot less friction and deliver you know value, um, that's a good thing. The third layer, so uh, the, multi, the multi-party consensus, and the business logic layer, and then tokenization. Tokenization understood as uh, not just uh, a crypto asset, but the economic incentives uh, that would be associated with that. And here, you know, I talk about it in these terms, this is where I point to the wonderful paper that John Bass does and now uh, did and is now talking a lot about, which is the three design uh, frameworks, if you will, or models that are out there uh, that in some way link back to to what I'm describing in terms of what you're enabling. What does a consortium look like? Uh, is it member-led? Are there markets and exchanges that we're supporting uh, that are, uh, token incentives can enable and so forth? From my standpoint around our use case, uh, it'll be enough to have that heavy lift around multi-party consensus, the transparency and the data sharing that provides ultimately the the, the why of, of the journey that we're on, uh, which is to, to really help address a set of problems that exist around medical device safety and quality and that aren't exceptional to the U.S., uh, but are problems uh, experienced globally.
0: Right, and definitely blockchain distributed ledger technology is going to be disruptive, or at least many of us think it will be, and that'll change the way we do business and the way we... Uh, expect people to or organizations to make money so i'm wondering what is your company's business model and how would you make you know how do you generate enough value so you can pay your employees right operating costs
1: well right well certainly you always manage burn rate and uh, at this point uh, we have uh, i think done a really good job of managing that as well as uh, investing our own capital and savings in this business we have the benefit of of the the grants, uh, we have consulting revenues coming in as as many firms do. If I look for how um, either uh, software systems are priced, software as a service are priced, because really this is the software as a service that that we're providing, or more directly to the idea that there are assets and an inventory of assets that a health system has. Uh, there's there's sort of two models here. One would be um, a uh, a subscription model um, that could be based on, on users or implementations and in instances. Another is assets under administration. I'm borrowing uh, a term we use in finance, assets under management fees that you incur, for example, as part of uh, owning a mutual fund. Uh, in this case, it's assets under administration. If you think about what the service is at this level, uh, it's an administrative service. So there might be a per asset fee, a recurring fee, if you will, um, that is got breakpoints in it. So that as more assets are added, um, that that uh, price per asset drops down. The other side of it is uh, we're looking to provide analytics and additional value. I don't think any business that's enterprise software focused can sit and just look at uh, market pricing around a subscription service and not know that it's going to be chasing and trying to add more and more value and that's where analytics comes in if you look at our offer we're pairing together not only the distributed ledger uh, aspect of this but geospatial services enabled by ArcGIS uh, the Esri uh, implementation we're taking advantage of uh, tracking technologies and tagging technologies in addition to standards so RFID tagging or real time location services many of the Uh, More advanced health systems are putting real-time location services in, certainly RFID and other tagging that allows you to track in real-time or near real-time the movement of assets through a facility. We're able to take advantage of those services, uh, and there's a wide variety of firms. I don't want to call it uh, commodity-like, but there's a wide variety of firms that are not only providing the tagging but a lot of uh, value over the top of that. We're pairing those technologies together, to give, uh, you know, real insights uh, beyond that chain of custody and, and that selective data sharing that's uh, important and really helping harness more information as our clients would look and say, hey, if we, we brought this together with data that we have, here's some other insights we might be able to develop.
0: Do you think what you're building, do you think it'll provide new ways for real world evidence to grow? Uh,
1: yeah, that's really important. And, and I think we all appreciate whether it's for pharma or for medical devices, this is a cornerstone as well of, of what uh, regulators are asking uh, uh, of, of manufacturers. And there are a number of answers to that. It's very complex. I've, I've, uh, I've looked at that that world and said yes, certainly information uh, about the service history uh, and quicker cycles back around adverse events helps everyone. So you're able to tease out those issues um, and and get at what concretely uh, the evidence is. But let's be mindful that there are a lot of different specialties here and registries that are dedicated. Now, these registries, uh, let's say orthopedics, cardiovascular, uh, they may be around a specialty and be very much focused on clinical research. They weren't purposed with sort of supply chain use cases in mind or uh, this kind of data. Or uh, they may be geared to performance uh, and geographic. Uh, there's there's registries in the UK. There's some extraordinary work that has been done uh, uh, with some funding from the FDA uh, around, through the MD, uh, EpiNet uh, funding. Uh, I think Mercy Hospital took the lead uh, to demonstrate that the use of unique device identifiers um, helped to bring forward and support in um, a couple of limited uh, uh proofs of concept, if you will, just, just a few types of devices to really provide transparency and value. And, and uh, we certainly are aware of what some of the leading health systems are trying to do around this. An important piece of this as well is NEST, uh, which is the national evaluation system, a collaborative public-private partnership that likewise is, is looking to bring members in um, and help support manufacturers and health systems to bring this to bear. This is not, uh, to the exclusion of that. This can, as your insight, I think is, uh, very much point on. This can help support, uh, and provide that, that additional, uh, you know, if you open up the kaleidoscope, you want to be able to say, well, you know, this, this, this element of, of the light actually has to do with adverse events. Unfortunately, it's the case that it's very difficult. And this is a challenge manufacturers have. It's very difficult to, to, um, Ensure that reporting happens, that incidents are actually reported and that they are attributed to a device. It's hard mm-hmm. to know. Clinical staff uh, have a lot of demands on their time. So it can take uh, sometimes, unfortunately, weeks, months, or years for manufacturers, the quality and regulatory affairs professionals to recognize a, a pattern of events and be able to attribute it to their device, to the design, production, uh, to um what might be instructions around maintenance and repair and or issues around components. This all takes time. Um, And that's understandable. It's looping it back out then and getting back out to, you know, where those devices are are in use that also compounds the timeline. So uh, to the extent we can help and shorten those cycles and that recognition time and it feeds into that larger picture, I think all benefit.
0: Right, and as devices become more, you know, these devices gain more connectivity or become smarter, really, uh, this technology could be used for greater reasons here. Yeah, uh,
1: well, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, the FDA uh, back this summer issued some draft guidance on uh, adaptive algorithms, AI, and, mm-hmm. and machine learning. Uh, there's still a discussion going back and forth, and well, there should be, there's a lot to this. Uh, good, good practices in terms of software development will be very important here. Uh, certainly there's a section of that refers to procedures around updates um, to the to the algorithms whether those procedures will be universal or to subpopulations uh, teasing that out and getting that down to the point where actually then those upgrades are performed and the inter- introduction of a new machine learning model based on you know insights that were gleaned over time data that's been gathered you know through the rigor of a uh, you know clinical, Clinical research and, and all the real world evidence that would be necessary, uh, teasing that out and, and being able to stand behind that, and then the actual implementation, the servicing, if you will. Uh, you know, we're really interested in being able to support um, the documentation, if you will, around that.
0: Can you share some of your current customers or any pilots that you currently have?
1: Uh, I'm unable to do that under uh, NDAs that we're restrained by.
0: Okay. I can respect that. Can you talk a little bit more about the company roadmap? I guess the next, what's happening in 2020?
1: Um, I th- I think we'll be able in the in the latter part of the year to talk about um, some of the work we've been doing, either in a case study format, or I would uh, hope we will announce uh, a minimum viable consortium uh, with some some names that people will recognize and and hopefully understand the. Uh, uh, have taken the journey uh, very deliberately. Um, some of these agendas, we've spent um, 18, 18 months, 24 months working on. This is uh, uh, look. I I worked in finance with with banks. Uh, enterprises uh, can move slowly and deliberately, and there are very good reasons for that. I've been on both sides of the table. Um, uh, not only now as an entrepreneur, uh, but I've been the person asking the tough questions about uh, third party risk and new technologies. Uh, on the other side of it, I've been in product development and enterprise, uh, enterprise sales. Um, so, um, all, all the parties, uh, that need to be involved are getting involved in, and that's all good.
0: Yeah, I agree. Definitely deliberate thought behind, you know, how to move forward is super important here in this, especially in the healthcare field where, you know, people's lives could be, um, at risk. I noticed on your website, you also have a few job openings uh, for the company, and I just kind of wanted the audience to know about this. Um, There's three here, Platform Engineer, Lead Analytics Engineer, and UX Lead. So if anyone is interested, if those positions are still open, maybe you can confirm that.
1: Well, uh, what I actually will confirm, if you actually look at the the postings, those are for Development Center uh, in Edinburgh. Uh, we remain committed from an engineering talent standpoint uh, for the, uh, the core platform um, to that development center. Here in the U.S., uh, uh, while we aren't um, out there right now, uh, to the extent we're ready from a business development standpoint, uh, from a, a product standpoint, uh, expertise uh, in healthcare and clinical engineering, certainly contemplate hires uh, here in the States.
0: Awesome. I have a few more like personal questions actually. And if you had a microchip implanted in your body or if you had to have one, where would you want it to be implanted?
1: My fingernail. Fingernail. That's a pretty yeah, Then I, I'd clip it off if I didn't think it was doing me doing me right.
0: That's fair. Non-invasive really. It's not too Uh that's a good idea. Um next, I wanted to know what your favorite book is.
1: Ah. Uh, it's a pamphlet, actually. It's Edmund Burke's reflections on the Revolution in France.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, why would I say that? Um, yeah, I think I think that uh, you know, at the corner cornerstone of the Enlightenment. Uh, this was written in 1790. Certainly, representative views he expressed uh, on the floor of the the Parliament. Uh, he was grappling with uh, the the cross currents of significant changes, uh, significant changes in the uh, geopolitical sense, significant changes and in, in mandates around uh, uh, royalty versus constitutional governments, hmm. looking not only at France, but the United States and, and the British Raj. And he had some, I think very pointed comments around the importance of uh, measured, disciplined uh, uh, evolution and reform uh, being necessary and the dangers of being too aggressive. Uh, pointing to the revolution in France as an example of excess concerns about the Enlightenment that were disconnected from a, a good understanding of human affairs and human nature. And and from a societal standpoint, uh, the term he used is prejudices. We understand that word differently. Mm-hmm. I like to look at it as a uh, as the distilled wisdom that that a society has arrived at, a culture has arrived at, and the importance of preserving that and that said, Burke also said that uh, in order to preserve those things that we most value, we need to change. We need to be willing to change. In that sense, I consider myself a Burkean conservative. Mm. And uh, when I think about being in this community, um, certainly there are, you know, coming out of the earliest roots of Bitcoin, uh, many challenging, you know, core institutions, and and rightly so. There's good to have a dialogue and a challenge. I'm definitely coming from uh, a more measured, deliberate, pragmatic um, evolution of things and concerned. I am, uh, by education, uh, an historian, uh, post Reformation European history. Uh, so um, I came across his writings uh, many years ago. I think it's informed and influenced me uh, much of my life.
0: It's very interesting. Um- I was going to ask for my next question, who was your famous, a famous role model that you might have that might inspire you? It could be a scientist, business leader, inventor. I'm thinking you might answer with the same answer. but
1: No, no actually, uh, but a similar answer a century later. Hmm. Uh, and that's Robert Frost, the poet. Hmm. Um, some understand him to be, and he was um, a poet for, for the people in the sense that uh, his, his poems uh, would, were written in the vernacular and, and accessible. But that's the, the subtlety of, of, of Frost, as he found a way to speak uh, uh, with nuance uh, within the uh, the confines and constraints with a, a new richness um, that plumbed human nature and human affairs in, in a way that seemed kind of pedestrian. Uh, when you read some of his most famous poems, uh, um, you, you recognize it as uh, coming in from that New England plain spokenness. Uh, but frankly, Frost lived a very long life. Uh, in the In the late 19th century, he went through and, and into the early 20th uh, major transitions in um, intellectual dialogue and understanding. Let's let's remember that the the writings of Darwin and Marx and Freud, you know, came to light, you know, from from the 1850s and and then into the 1920s and 30s. Uh, Frost didn't really step out of. Uh, uh, what was uh, you know kind of mundane life uh, to be a poet? Till he was well into his 40s, he spent time in England uh, amongst some of the the great poets and writers of that time. He was very ambitious for himself, and he understood himself within the profession. But he lived well into uh, his his uh, late 80s, early 90s. You may be aware that he spoke at John Kennedy's inauguration, um, and he was a bit of a, a curmudgeon to some, an invunctular. Avuncular type, but he was always very engaged around the major issues and trends that were going on in society. And in that sense, there's a similarity in uh, to my uh, fascination with and interest in the thought of Burke. I feel the same with with um, Frost. Two things that come to mind, both from Frost's private private letters and his poetry. He said he had a lover's quarrel with the world, and in some ways, I feel that's my own life. I, I I have so many issues that I, I feel disturbed about. Uh, I grew up in, in the late sixties, early seventies. Um, so I saw a lot of the ch- challenges we had as a nation and, and globally during that period. Certainly the things that have gone on over the last 20 and 30 years and, and more recently since the financial crisis here in the United States. And yet I'm engaged, uh, you know, to try to make a difference within conventional institutions. Um, so that lover's quarrel. Um, the other thing that Frost wrote um, to a, in a private letter was, we're all like giants hurling life ahead of us so that we might pave the future with and draw a line of purpose across it someday. Hmm. Um, that really stuck with me. I think that that gets back to sort of the why and the when of Spiritus, uh, at least for me. The why... Um, because um, I want to make a difference. I've always held myself to a standard of trying to stay informed and abreast, to know that things are changing, uh, that there are things worth preserving. And I also you know, came to that juncture in my life when it was time to draw a line of purpose across it. How this ends up, I know not. I'm very glad that, that I, I stepped away from what I was doing, I was able to take from that time, talent and treasure and be able hopefully to make some contribution to the discussion and the dialogue, um, around what I consider a very important issue.
0: Wow. Susan, first, uh, thank you for the history lesson. Second, I truly do think you are a visionary and I am definitely looking forward to tracking Spiritus, seeing what new developments you guys are, um, you know, announcing. And I kind of just want to thank you again for your time. And if you have any final takeaways for the audience or anything you want to share, uh, this would be a great time.
1: Um, I like to say, whatever the choice you make, stay after it. Pick yourself up when you get knocked down and stay after it.
0: Fantastic. Thanks again.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.